and welcome aboard the battleship retention. Uh, I'm just going to say it this time. I'm Scott Nye. I'm David Bax. Tyler and Smith thank you for is. Listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Tyler Smith has returned to assignment. What that assignment is is a huge secret. Um, no, we all know he's a dad. Um, it was good having him back last week to talk in the Morricone with West. Uh, thank you to West for for doing that and for lending his. Uh, uh, music expertise. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but now we're back into the swing of, uh, the regular sort of, uh, uh, yearly episodes we do every year, Scott, you're on the podcast to wrap up AFI fest, uh, with me, sometimes with, uh, other people, um, this year, a month earlier th- than usual. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, usually, uh, AFI fest is in, in, uh, November. Um, but, uh, this year it's in October. Uh, so that's what we'll be talking about in a little later, but first, you had something you wanted to uh, to ask me about. <laughs> well, the most exciting thing uh, on the social media, movie-wise, and I know your favorite thing in the entire world, is, of course, uh, the sort of, like, greatest movie of all time showdown bracket in which uh, any Twitter user can log in and vote via Twitter's poll option, and slowly but surely we will find probably the worst movie of all time has uh, won best, the greatest movie of all time, according to various Twitter users. Uh, I find it a lot of fun. This is something hosted by, uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember his real name. I think his name is Neil, but uh, it's at Cooper Cooper Co on Twitter if you want to join in on the fun. I find it a lot of fun. Creates some fun conversations. David, how much do you love this? I I find it very annoying and I have uh, Ah, since the beginning because it started, I mean, it started when all the brackets start, right? Like around March-ish? That sounds right. it's been pretty persistent throughout the uh, quarantine. So that sounds about right to me. Um, so I guess it, it won't end. Like the thing about <laughs> the other March, like March, the reason that everyone does a bracket in March is because of March Madness, the NCAA sure. basketball tournament, uh, which goes from, you know, 64 teams down to, down to one. And that happens in a finite amount of time is the thing. Um, this bracket won't end it won't stop and also i I think i especially find it annoying because twitter is a, a, a platform in which every individual tweet is kind of like unmoored from one another to me at least the way i read it like i'm not i i can't see the whole bracket at once well you can go to its thread a thread. Yeah. So I have to scroll through everything. Like there's no, there's no pay. Is there a page somewhere? Does Cooper Cooper co have a page somewhere showing the advancement of the brackets? Uh, that is a great question. I, the whole thing has been very mysterious to me as far as like when films pop up in a certain order, I believe it is posted, uh, on maybe his pinned tweet. Um, just like his methodology. Cause it started with like all these unwieldy brackets of different eras that all have kind of now collided. Yeah, there's a there's an advancement bracket that you can go to. Okay, see so that maybe that would, that would help me, but uh, um, the way that I read it now, it's like I guess it's it's like any other tweet that would annoy me that like doesn't have anything to do with any of the tweets uh, around it in a way, and and I'm like, what, what what is this? Like I'm in the middle of you know i'm reading about the the dodgers world series win um which i'm happy about or uh the uh 
Dodgers Justin Turner uh, <laughs> embarrassing himself and acting like a fool by uh, joining them on the field despite his positive coronavirus test. Yeah. Um, you can't, we can't even have a good thing. We have a good thing for like 10 minutes. You know, uh, the first Dodgers win since I've lived in Los Angeles. It's, I'm a Cardinals fan, but that's fantastic for them. I'm very happy to be here. Um, uh, we've had three Lakers wins and two Kings wins since I've lived here, but this is the first Dodgers win. Very excited about it. 10 minutes later, it's like Justin Turner's on the field. He was supposed to be like in isolation. Um, what an idiot. It really makes me mad. Um, but anyway, I guess when I'm reading Twitter, there's like a, uh, there's a, there's a flow, I guess. And, and, and this bracket seems to not fit with Twitter to me, I guess in a way I, I feel that way about most polls on Twitter. Okay. Um, that I'm like, it, it just, I'm just like, this isn't how I use Twitter. Um, uh, because Twitter's supposed to be fleeting. So like if a poll lasts 24 hours, but I vote on it, then it's, it's gone. Like it's ephemeral. Like my vote is gone. And like, it doesn't feel like it's a part of anything. I mean, that is the way I approach it, if that helps. Uh, you know, the first time someone retweets it, I'll just click on that, whatever one they're dunking on, vote on the string from today and move on with the day. Uh, maybe make some comments myself along the way about uh, how Mad Max Fury Road is inexplicably beating out uh, the red shoes, for example. <laughs> but um, um, I mean, other than that, it is a fleeting activity for me. Um, that doesn't seem inexplicable to me because, uh, I feel like no one knows more than I do how much people love Mac, Mad Max Fury Road. Sure. I suppose you would. Um, but, uh, I, well, I think, uh, you were more, um, adept at Twitter than I am anyway. So maybe my, my problem is just with, with Twitter, uh, as a whole that I feel like, um, it, it, Twitter it like increasingly feels like something that you're either like you're either in or you're out uh, uh, of Twitter, which is not how I use it, which is like uh, the way I use it is that I will sometimes go a few days without looking at it. And then sometimes I'll be, you know, uh, you know, waiting outside a restaurant for a takeout to, you know, order to right. be ready and I'll read it for 20 minutes or whatever. Um, so to me, it's a drop-in type of thing, and the movie bracket is an ongoing thing. Um, and I, I, and then we've come back to my main problem with it, which is that it just won't end. <laughs> well, there is an end in sight. Now the errors are colliding. The polls are not strictly relegated to decade. You got your uh, Fargo going up against Apocalypse Now. Uh, what else do we have here? There will be blood against Moonlight, Goodfellas against the Muppet movie. So slowly but surely, we're winnowing its way down. I would hope by the end of the year, it'll be over for your sake. Well, I guess that that's another thing is this is Mr. Cooper um, should have a, an end date in mind. That's another thing that happens with a, a tournament like March Madness. We know when the final game is going to be played. Yeah, I guess I can't speak to whether or not uh, he only designed the... Uh, elimination round or has a schedule to go by okay well uh i have i've, I've uh, I'm, I'm sad to hear that it's back uh, i hadn't noticed because i'm in a not like a not really twitter using uh mood uh today 
uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that it's back and I hope it uh, ends soon and I never have to see it again. Sounds great. <laughs> uh, until then, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. Uh, they sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. Uh, today, I was listening to, you know, I'm a big fan of the band The Mountain Goats, which I feel like a lot of people are now, um, but I have been for close to 20 years. Sure, sure. Big you were there the first. You're yeah, so cool. I, yes, I have to say that. Um, uh, and The Mountain Goats have uh, a new album out, and it, uh, the name of The Mountain Goats is a very Mountain Goats title, Getting Into Knives. Um, and uh, I listened to it today while I walked around the park, and uh, I, I'm going to say not counting the um, other earlier songs for Pierre Chavin, the other uh, Mountain Goats album that came out earlier this year, which was a throwback to his early lo-fi, to John Daniel's early lo-fi stuff. Not counting that album. I think Getting Into Knives might be my favorite Mountain Goats album since 2012's Transcendental Youth. That's how I'm feeling after a first listen. So okay. uh, I would definitely recommend checking out Getting Into Knives. I'd also recommend Getting Into Knives. It's just like... Uh, uh, I haven't <laughs> picked up a quarantine hobby yet, which I feel like most people have. <laughs> so maybe this will be mine. Uh, I did briefly... Uh, they're available... Sorry, those are available at tweakedaudio.com um, for a low, low price. Uh, but for one, if you use the alpha code, pretension at checkout, you get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to Battleship Pretension sorry go to tweaktaudio.com and use the offer code pretension hi there it's julia louis dreyfus you may know me from my podcast called wiser than me where i talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life i was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older which is why i'm here to talk about season two of the show sally field billy jean king beverly johnson ina garten bonnie ray just to name a few all hail old women wiser than me season two is out now from lemonada media what i was going to say uh scott is i did briefly kind of get into swords not in terms of like buying or collecting swords but like learning about swords okay and it's because there used to be and it's like not only is it is the guy did the guy stop doing it the archives completely taken down but there used to be a tumblr page called art of swords.tumblr.com that was it was so great. It was like uh, just pictures of swords and then incredibly detailed descriptions of what you were looking at, you know? Um, and then it was sort of like realizing that more goes into a sword and every piece of a sword has a very specific like name. Um, Look, and, I saw Kill Build Volume uh, 2. I, I know it goes on. Um, but see, the, really that's like... Um, katanas and stuff like that like those are cool too but they became my, my least favorite i more liked the sort of like ornately like handled guarded like uh uh like renaissance era type of uh of, of swords but i liked them all i and i got and i and i like was like weirdly like into swords just from reading this guy's um um uh tumblr like i actually like i like saw on his tumblr or heard about some like sword convention and like literally like honestly considered going to a sword convention, uh, sword convention? i don't remember now this is years ago well, and then the like, t- i'm saying how much sacrifice would you have put had to put into the sword convention is it like an afternoon across town or would you have to book something i think it might have been a day trip yeah i don't okay. know if i would have um but uh um 
but then the the blog art of sorts went away the tumblr went away and i kind well, of realized the like got rid of porn you know yeah, you exactly stick around. <laughs> exactly uh and then i kind of realized like oh i think i was just into the way like the swords that this guy liked and the way that he described them apparently i was just a fan of this guy <laughs> um, <laughs> very great uh start for a short story i think <laughs> um but I do remember reading once on Art of Swords a, a story about a sword that was like found in the forest that was like hundreds of years old. Like there had been some, I don't know if there had been a battle or maybe a guy just dropped his sword and then it just laid on the forest floor for like 200 years and then someone found it. All right. That's pretty cool. It's a, it's a weird thing that kind of like gives me hope about the world. And, Did you see and, and the... Life. Uh cat that they just found on a mountain in like brazil or something no there's like this truly enormous carving of a cat in some mountain i think in south america i can't remember where uh just in the side of this mountain and just some miners found it and it has just been sitting there for yeah hundreds or thousands of years who knows how long man i love uh, that and they just uncovered it through mining or whatever uh, I love that. I love, I love that. There's it, the idea that there's still stuff for us to find. I guess oh, is what sure. that like. Uh, and I guess that gets us into festival life. Whoa! That you never know what you're going to. Uh, what on what surprising thing you're going to uncover um, at a festival? Well, I mean, a couple, from last year's AFI Fest, I had there were two movies that I picked just because like I had a hole in my schedule. One of them I wasn't previously a fan of the director, but ended up really liking Quentin Depew's Deerskin. Um, uh, right. That's what it was called, right? Deerskin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other one I saw with you, which was, uh, I want to say an Indonesian film called Jalakatu. Oh yeah. That movie was super awesome. It was awesome. Um, and I didn't know anything about it, uh, going in. I know that the, the sort of key art that, you know, uh, uh, drawn up for the, for the festival or, or for the movie uh, looked cool. Um, and I was like, I need something to watch on this Sunday afternoon or whatever it was. And uh, 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 I, I don't know if the virtual festival allows for as much of that. I'm going to say that the way I did it, it kind of didn't. Yeah. Um, I think it's tougher to have that because you don't have the scheduling thing of forcing you to see random right. things because it works out with the schedule. Like if you have a two day window to watch whatever, then you're going to pick the stuff you want to watch and not just what happens to land in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, we're going to get into not knives. We're going to get into AFI fest 2020 and the movies that we watch now, uh, Scott, how do you want to do this? Do you want to go alphabetically? Uh, that is a great idea that I wish I prepared for, but I can do so very quickly. How many movies did you watch? I only watched eight. Uh, I'm just going to say I had planned to watch 10, but okay. the, so the streaming windows had this thing where there's access for two days, but then as soon as you started watching it, that could be as soon as it became available or the hour before it became unavailable, you would still have another two days to watch it. So in trying to juggle that end of the streaming thing, I uh, missed a couple bucks. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thought I'd be able to start some stuff and then catch up with it later. And I started too late. I see. I see. Um, uh, yeah, I should have also, I don't know why I said alphabetically. Um, well, you know what? Here's what we'll do then instead. Um, because I also have a, I, I, I have eight, there's nine that I saw, but I saw collective beforehand. So I'm not going to count that. And I talked about it a little bit on the, um, 
on the movie journal way back when I saw it. And I talked about it on the fall movie preview with, with you and Julie. So uh, since we both have eight, why don't we just go back and forth? Oh, Even back and forth. There will be some overlap, but that'll be, it'll be like we're doing one of our countdown episodes. We're just classic. Go, go two in a row. Uh, if we have overlap or whatever. All right, sounds good. So, um, how about, uh, you start as the person who officially covered sure. AFIFS for battleshipretention.com. You can find reviews of many of these that we're about to discuss, uh, from both of us at AFI, uh, sorry, at battleshipretention.com. Nailing the URLs today. I really can't get it. I, I, I got, uh, I got swords on the brain. <laughs> Look, we've all been there. Um, I'll just go with the first movie I watched, which I know you saw because you texted me immediately after, which was uh, Michelle Franco's uh, New Order, um, which I wasn't as disappointed in as you. I, I think it's a competent movie, if a little uh, juvenile. Um, but I didn't See, hate it. Okay. I wouldn't say disappointed. I would say I hated it because it's more than a little bit juvenile. Um, okay. I would say that uh, I... Um, cause we'll get to stuff later that also covers some unpleasant ground, sure, sure. but, um, I think what I found to be an almost complete lack of empathy in this movie is what really, uh, turned me off. Of yeah. It. So it's about, um, it's kind of situated around a young rich woman, uh, who's getting married and the first, I'd say 20 minutes, half hour or so just takes place on the day of her wedding and kind of the comings and goings of the party. And you hear some people mentioning that there seems to be some kind of protest nearby that's disrupting traffic. Some of the guests aren't making it there in time, that kind of stuff. And then like out of nowhere, these dudes surmount over the wall and uh, just start killing people and stealing all their stuff. And you find out it's part of this massive revolution that's underway uh, that maybe the army's involved in and that eventually kidnaps the young bride and uh, tortures her for a good deal of time uh, trying to get a ransom out of her family. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's no, the everyone in this movie suffers um, in, in various ways, some, some more than others, but um, uh, I, I think um, the, the, the screenplay seems to have just a complete lack of, belief in humanity in any way uh that i found um uh easy like cheap to to that 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 kind of like nihilism that kind of fatalism um is not difficult to come by yeah i would say that it's most attractive feature up front which is that it's like 80 minutes long or 85 minutes or something <laughs> yeah. uh is its undoing because it dedicates zero time to like I said, maybe the army's involved or it could be a rogue group. There's so little information about, aside from the vague, like haves versus have nots of what's kind of motivating the revolution or what's driving them. There's almost no insight to the revolutionaries themselves. They're given almost no screen time that's dedicated to them. Uh, and some people have read this kind of focus on the rich as sort of a classism in of, of itself. It's like, Oh, we're only supposed to sympathize with the rich people. I kind of took it as uh Franco trying to warn his mostly wealthy festival audiences about what might become of them. But in and of, but even then that's like, there's always this tendency amongst people who have any degree of uh, wealth and that could be very modest middle-class wealth. They're certainly above that at any moment, people are going to start attacking them. <laughs> and that broadly, like aside from a few revolutions in history, that doesn't really happen that much. 
Um, yeah. So that's part of what I found kind of juvenile about the movie is it's just assumption that it, if you oppress poor people enough, they'll start killing anybody. Um, not that that doesn't happen, but that that's not like an automatic outcome. So that's why I felt like we needed more on the other side to kind of get to the motivation, get to the organization, get to what was driving it all. Because otherwise, yeah, it is just a series of uh, very gruesome actions. Yeah, we should... The, it, it, as a, as a uh, disclaimer, um, I, I don't know that we've fully gone into how how uh, brutal some of the things that happen in this movie are, sure. and 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 how upsetting uh, they, they are. Um, so uh, I, I guess we. I, I was uh, part of. So I, I didn't like the movie at all, but I also was looking forward to it because I have liked some of Michelle Franco's movies in the past. Um, a movie like After Lucia, which is also um, not a very favorable view of of people, and also has terrible things uh, happen within it. I think because it has kind of a slow burn revenge plot, it does feel like at least it's sympathizing with one character, even if it's not. Even if I, th- I don't know if the movie stops short, maybe of actually condoning what happens at the end, uh, that that could be uh, up for up for debate. But um, uh, it just even the re- revenge, which is like a plot device, uh, is so often is a human trait, <laughs> um, and the humans don't do anything in this movie except suffer or fuck each other over, right. Um, yeah. And I, the only positive thing I'll say is that the first, that first section of the first 20 minutes, half hour, I thought was pretty exciting and pretty involving mm-hmm. and just the mounting tension of it all pretty yeah. much up to the point where she gets kidnapped. I think all that really works. Um, yeah. so I, that's why I'm I with you. Yeah. totally dismiss the movie is that just the pure kind of mechanics of putting that together is okay. pretty well done. All right. Well, that was going to be my number one. So what was your or number one? Sorry. We're not ranking these. <laughs> this is my first one in order. What, um, so what's second for you then? Yeah, the next one I watched was uh, The Intruder, which is an Argentine, to tie it into one of our recent topics, uh, an Argentine uh, thriller. Wait, didn't we like, learn it's supposed to be Argentine? Oh, damn it. I, I someone said sure that I was on... doing it the right way, but not, I went back to the wrong way. Yeah, somebody did uh, message us to tell us we were being dumb Americans. Uh, yes, the Argentine. Oh, I mean, that, that person could also just be like an <laughs> idiot who lives in like Newfoundland or something and has no idea what he's talking about. It's just fucking with us. He said he lived in Buenos Aires. I know, I know what he said. What I'm saying is he could be fucking with us. That w- he was very calm for a, you know, a shit poster, as it were. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway. I'm sure, yes, I, I am sure a you lived in Buenos Aires. Psychological thriller hailing from the nation of Argentina. Um, starring a woman who was in wild tales, which was one of the movies I mentioned on our Argentina episode. Uh, yeah. So this is, it's a pretty solid movie. It's about a young, no middle-aged woman who is kind of loose in her new relationship, getting along. Okay. With the guy, maybe not totally invested. Um, and she's going on vacation with him. Uh, some tragedy befalls their vacation and kind of sets her off on kind of a becoming slowly mentally unhinged. Uh, the beginning of the film, again, as with New Order, really works and is really uh, involving and gripping and does some really cool things with the camera in terms of kind of establishing her possibly unfurling psychological state. Uh, and then kind of the middle just kind of drifts a bit and just kind of has kind of rote uh, signals that she's becoming a little unmoored. She's a singer and a vocal artist 
a singer and a choir and a vocal artist. And in the vocal session, she does these like dubs for Japanese slasher movies. Um, and the sound recorders keep picking up this like interference whenever she gets near the microphone as though there's like something in her that's uh, messing with the sound. And at the choir, she can't sing as powerfully as she used to. She, bec- she starts to seem a little unstable there. And just keeps kind of going back to these same cycles again and again for I'd say 40 minutes or so, whatever the middle section of the movie is. The ending is also really cool and very uh, surreal and expressive as she just kind of fully descends into whatever kind of madness she's experiencing. But it's uh, I believe it's a first time director. So it's a strong start or second time director. Sorry. This is her second film. So it's a strong kind of signal that she could develop into a stronger filmmaker, but uh, this one on its own probably won't uh, be one that mm. many viewer, many listeners can watch. Uh, all right. I, I watched uh, ne- next up uh, another film that I was very much looking forward to. Uh, and this one did not disappoint. Um, next up for me is Gianfranco Rossi's Noturno. Um, Gianfranco Rossi um, directed, he's a documentarian. Uh, his, I think his this is his sixth feature. His fifth one, Fire at Sea, was I believe nominated for a best doc, best documentary that Oscar. Sounds right. Um, and uh, um, Fire at Sea was a, a movie that um, sort of detailed life in this uh, island off the coast of Italy, which tends to be a landing point for a lot of African refugees who come by by boat. Um, uh, often in very, uh, uh, you know, having survived in some cases not survived, uh, the, the journey and his approach is that he, with the same sort of, uh, I'm still talking about the old one fired to here with the same, <laughs> with a similar sort of, um, uh, um, not, I don't want to say distance because I think he, he feels very close to these people with a, uh, serenity and a calmness depicts, the efforts of the refugees to come aboard and the, and the first responders or whatever the, uh, you would call them, uh, there, um, to, to help, to help these people. And then just daily life among like a family who live on this Island. And it just goes back and forth, uh, uh, between them. And, um, his follow-up now, Naturno, um, is, has a very similar approach with a less specific, uh, uh, scheme, I guess it's it just, he spent three years in, um, uh, I'm trying to remember like, uh, Iraq and Lebanon, um, in Syria. I can't remember where else. Um, and outside of that opening title card that says where he shot the movie over these three years, there's no other text on screen. So from one shot to another, you don't know where you are. You're just seeing life day-to-day life under uh um isis or other sort of um uh terrorist forces or under war in the in the syria uh uh, portions and the movie is uh somehow miraculously and this is what i like about him not just uh misery porn or not the sort of thing um that's meant to it's not like a news magazine sort of documentary if you've done it feature length which we see a lot of um and some of those are good you know there was the one just last year or year before about the the hospital in in syria i can't remember what that one was called now um some of those are, are, are good but this is just at a at a remove just watching life often filmed or often photographed 
very beautifully. There's a lot of beauty to, to, to his movies and a lot of stillness and patience uh, to them. And sometimes there are certain little, like uh, you almost want to call them storylines or at least like people that will, We'll, we'll drop back in on there's like a uh there's like a kid who's like a day laborer who gets hired out by guys who are going out to hunt birds to be essentially like their the dog like who goes out and grab like actually these guys shoot the birds this, this kid runs out to the field like grabs the bird and carries it back but he just waits by the side of the road for a hunter to pick him up we see a couple of those um uh, so there's, there's certain things we, we like return to and certain people we don't uh, um there's and, and some of it is very very sad there's a a mother uh visiting the cell where her uh son um grown son was uh tortured and killed by uh by isis um that's very upsetting but also there's like kind of almost whimsical stuff there's a a very long take of uh like a guy a guy walks a donkey up to a street corner and like ties up the donkey and goes into the, whatever the, but we don't see because the camera is just focused on the donkey who's on the street corner and the donkey, the entire shot is staring directly at the camera with his back to traffic as cars just zip back and forth directly behind the donkey. He's completely unfazed. He's just staring at the camera. <laughs> it goes on a long time and it's very like funny and, and cute. There's all sorts of little, little things like that, that overall just paint a picture of um, just, life under these like not it doesn't try to discount that these people are living under stress in fact it gets into uh there's a there's a part with a uh children talking to a some sort of school counselor or child psychologist about the terrible things that they've seen and you see kids processing it there's another thing we return to over and over again uh of a patients in a psychological ward putting on a psychological ward, putting on a play about um, what's going on in their country. Uh, And so you see that people are trying to process this. And um, I, I think that's kind of, sometimes I think the unfortunate effect of more directly hard hitting or, 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 um, challenging issues based documentaries about these sort of things is that when the viewer like you and me the western you know comfortable uh, uh bourgeois viewer finishes watching it they say like oh you know <laughs> i did that like now yeah. i've like having watched that i achieved something you know and i think a movie like this uh, makes you more realize that this isn't something that only exists when you read about it or, or hear about it. Like people are living every day uh, for years on end uh, under this and then finding ways to make a routine to make things quote unquote normal, but they're not normal. It's a very stressful uh, uh, situation. There's a, another like very darkly funny part where, uh, uh I, I think we might be in Beirut. I can't entirely tell where we are, but there's just two friends sitting on like the, patio of a restaurant like a hookah bar and they're sharing a hookah and you know you know the sound of a hookah or like a bong whatever makes that like like type of sound i can't quite do it you hear that sound and then also you're hearing a very similar sound which you realize is automatic gunfire off in the distance um and there's that's it is that is kind of like riley very bitterly funny in in a way um but it, it's, it goes back to this thing I keep saying about the movie that life 
uh, life goes on, but not in the way like la di da life goes on, <laughs> but, uh, people are living with this, uh, every day, yeah. um, in, in parts of the world that maybe our president thinks of as shitholes, but Gianfranco Rossi shows us are gorgeous, like places you and I will probably never go that are absolutely beautiful, um, and, and are, uh, ignored, um, when we're not, when we're not reading New York times articles about them. Right. Yeah, I think about that a lot, that there are all these places that I would love to visit, but which seem unbelievably dangerous. And so I never will. But there are like these unbelievably beautiful countries that yeah, just never going to go to. Yeah. Uh, I went on too long about that, but that was, I will say, that was, uh, I would say, of the of the movies that I saw at AFI Fest that are 2020 movies, that was my second favorite. Okay very uh deep qualifier so that probably yeah. was well, that fifth or so <laughs> uh no a third, third okay okay um yeah so my next was a movie that i believe you saw at some festival possibly over a year ago sound of metal yeah over a year ago uh tiff 2019 is when i saw that yeah that had quite a winding road uh to this point where it's still doing the festival circuit and uh ha- i think it's coming out on amazon prime in like a month um but the fact that i think it premiered even at sundance of 2019 i can't remember exactly but it's been around forever um and in some regards i don't know how you felt about it but i can kind of see why um first off did your i imagine because you saw it at actual screening they probably uh clarified that the subtitles were purposeful (laughs) Yeah, the director himself clarified that. Yeah. Uh, so when you're uh, closed captions, it up, not subtitles. Yeah, sorry. There, there's captions. a difference. So. Um, so when you're queuing it up on a streaming app and they didn't put a card beforehand, you might just think there's something wrong with your streaming app. Um, <laughs> note for future Amazon Prime viewers, there is not something wrong with your streaming app. The closed captions are burnt in and are there very purposefully. Um, I don't know that that gamut totally pays off. We'll get that in a second. It's, it's about this uh, drummer for a hardcore metal duo i guess um it's just him as the drummer and his girlfriend as a singer does she play guitar too i can't remember now um i i think i, can't, I also can't remember now yeah anyway uh it's just the two of them they put on rock and shows very small shows very close quarters people just packing around there might not even be a stage they might just be playing on the floor yeah. around this crowd uh those scenes are super awesome by the way um the drummer is played by riz ahmad who's uh proved to be quite a great actor and he's really good here um they play a show things are going well and then the next show you can tell he's losing his hearing you can tell that because the sound around him drops out and the closed captions of the company to start to kind of go in and out of the picture and those closed captions kind of become our i think even more so than the sound design our window into what he can understand of the world um and he is very much uh, frightened by the loss of hearing. Obviously, what meager life he's eking out uh, living in an RV with his girlfriend uh, depends on their music career. So it's not just a loss of passion. It's a loss of the only income he's probably ever known. Um, A loss of his entire way of life is threatening him. And he goes to a doctor who mentions that you can get these implants. And he's like, well, let's do that. And he's like, those are many thousands of dollars that you don't have, sir. Uh, and so he decides to kind of try to tough it out as much as he can until eventually, inevitably his girlfriend notices and he starts to get involved with kind of like a rehab track. Um, he had some drug addiction in the past. And so his sponsor knows, uh, 
kind of a hearing clinic that can help him get used to being deaf and help him become more accustomed to the deaf way of life. And he makes a go of that at first purely because he really doesn't have another option. You know, he, he, for some reason he's driving for most of the t this time, but he can't really safely live his life the way he's used to. Um, he's just kind of stuck uh, in the silence. And it's uh, written and directed by the co-writer of Place Beyond the Pines. And it kind of has a similar emotional heft to it where these unpredictable characters are driving the action. And that's definitely its strongest suit. I think it kind of loses its way in the kind of, I, can't, I don't know what to call the place. But I don't want to call it a camp, but it's like, it kind of has a camp environment where it's these adults, but they're all kind of bunked together. They mm -hmm. do kind of formed activities and they sleep overnight, obviously. They're, they're full-time and they're very much removed from the rest of the world. Um, but it seems too enamored of that environment and too much of like a PSA for the deaf community for much of that time that it's just trying to get these kind of humanizing talking points out to be like, look, deaf people live full lives too, which I always find a little condescending and didn't find any more so any less so here, uh, especially because I think Riz Ahmed's performance suffers a little bit where he starts to just for a bit of the time, just be Riz Ahmed living amongst these deaf people instead of investing in the character. He kind of tilts too much towards the recovery and this character is experiencing so that when his character has to fall off the wagon, so to speak again, and starts to reject this community, it feels too, the two poles are too violent. Um, and there's no real connective tissue kind of guiding him through that. I really like where it goes in kind of the final third and especially the way it ends, which kind of reasserts it on a character basis. Um, but I have some big reservations about the middle. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't think I feel the same way about, uh, his, his performance. Um, uh, and maybe this is just a result of my having seen it on a big screen and you, you haven't seen it on a, sure. on a small screen, but I feel like there's the, the falling off the wagon as you, uh, um, or at least the, this, this structure's version of falling off the wagon, I feel like is there the whole time. I, I feel like I could, I could see him never, I could see that he never quite let go of certain things. And so, um, I don't think it felt like it, uh, uh, swerved from one pole to another, uh, or, or however you, you, you put it. Um, but, uh, overall, I, I agree with you. It's a great, uh, performance um and then especially like, kind of the counselor at the deaf camp um i can't remember the guy's name but he's gives a really amazing performance that's really nuanced and textured and even though he's for most of the movie providing a pretty functionary role uh he really seems to bring a lot of lived experience to it yeah his uh man um paul something with an r maybe sure can't remember um sort of metal did actually premiere at tiff last year oh okay um, for some reason maybe it, played sundance. maybe it played sundance this year that, okay. that's what i'm thinking of paul racy um uh yeah I, I don't know what else to to add though um uh I re it really does um rely a lot on rizaman's performance and and uh he doesn't he doesn't let us let us down um but uh, I, I also like I, I like the beginning. As you mentioned the the shows. I also like the times in between the shows. The the the, the idea that like um, at night he and uh, and his girlfriend is um, 
Olivia Cook, I want to say. Uh, yeah, the dying girl, right? That's <laughs> um, weird that that's the front. For some reason, I always go to Ready Player One with her. Oh, which uh, I didn't see. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, she's also in like Thoroughbreds, right? Um, yeah. See, th- that's the funny thing is that I love her in Thoroughbreds. I don't really like her in Ready Player One or Dying Girl, uh, but those are the ones I tend to remember. Um, so anyway, um, uh, at night they like rock out and I love that the morning, despite him still being like all tattooed up and wearing like rudimentary P and I t-shirts and stuff <laughs> like that. He listens to like folk music and makes sure. uh, uh, smoothies and like works out in the morning, which I feel like if I were a teenager watching that, I'd be like, Oh, what a seller. What a loser being an older guy who still likes metal. I mean, not an older guy, but you know, uh, I'm yeah. 38, a 38 year old who still likes metal. I get that. Like I, and I, and my understanding of a lot of, metal heads as they get older is like they don't lose their love of metal but they also kind of like they pace themselves a little bit you can't get all that rage out as much when you're older you got to kind of slow down yeah. from time to time uh and then yeah i liked um uh the end i don't know if i uh yeah i don't want to say too much about about the yeah end, i don't want to give away too much but it, i think it ends on a very strong note um I thought that I guess because I had it explained to me beforehand, I thought the closed caption thing uh was it was a good idea um it was just uh, it was just described to us as uh, at the screening at, at TIFF as um, all screenings will have closed captions because we want all audiences, you know, or hearing and not hearing audiences to be able to enjoy the movie together. But I found what, what you found, uh, w- which is that seeing the closed captions and the descriptions of what's being heard or not being heard did help me get further into the into the state of mind. Yeah. I mean, I think for hearing audiences, the most obvious use of it will be when he's learning sign language and starting to employ that more. And it translates that and it kind of adds to a larger social point, which is to say like, well, just because most audiences need the closed captions for that, you know, why shouldn't there be closed captions for the rest of it? Um, I guess it's sometimes it felt a little distancing to me and that's probably just my tendency to be like, Oh, there's something on the screen. I'm looking at it. <laughs> Whereas I could have just ignored it for most of the time. <laughs> Uh, all right. So, um, I think it's my turn next and yeah. I'm going to move on to a movie you and I are going to disagree about, but probably right. not in an entertaining way. Just, um, I think we have, we have <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll see why, uh, I watched a new Orson Welles <laughs> joint called they just Hopper. Keep out these days. Yeah, called Hopper Wells. And I'll say, okay, a few years ago, uh, I can't remember who put this out. Someone had put out on Blu-ray a documentary called The American Dreamer, um, which is about Dennis Hopper and, and was shot at like essentially the same time. It was during the editing of the last movie. Um, and I found Dennis Hopper, as much as I'd like him as a director, more on that later, um, especially in his early work, less so Colors and Chasers. Those aren't very good movies. But um, as much as I like Dennis Hopper as a director, I have found I found watching The American Dreamer that uh, this is a man with, at least in person, conversationally, nothing to say. No. He's <laughs> a complete, like, uh, just puff of of hipster hot air um, <laughs> uh, and um i found the movie just tedious and so this i was like oh it's a whole discussion between orson wells and dennis hopper i was like kind of nervous going in but i was like it's still orson wells sure and i know that i'll like 
it for that. And I will say I like Hopper Wells better than the American Dreamer because there isn't that sort of uh, uh, fan worship type thing going on uh, in the movie. But I still think at what, two hours and 11 minutes, it's just for a guy with nothing to say, it's way too much Dennis Hopper. And I found myself getting bored for large parts of it. I would say I snapped back into it in the last big chunk when Orson Welles is finally starting to really like uh, uh, hold Dennis Hopper's feet to the fire about the things that he's saying or not saying or the things that he's not, you know, the points of view that he's not committing to. I got very into that, which I think, cause I think that's what I wanted to happen the whole time. But I would say um, as much as I liked the parts, I, I, I liked things about it that I had hoped to like about it, but overall I can't recommend spending 131 minutes with a, uh like poser uh <laughs> uh hipster celeb hippie you know post hippie celeb um who is as orson welles calls him out on at one point um too much of a politician to actually say anything <laughs> Uh, he does like Orson Welles does compare him to a politician at one yeah. point because he, he, uh, he wavers and he's noncommittal on, 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 on every point as if that, that's that sort of like new agey, like, well, what even is things, man? Like that's sort of like, <laughs> that's, that's very much Dennis Hopper throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I read your review and I know you, I, uh, found a lot more, uh, uh, to it than, than I did. So why don't you, uh, take over here? Yeah. So here's the thing. Uh, I think, given how diametrically opposed we quickly find the two of them to be and probably would assume to be just based on the type of work they did and the type of public personalities they had. Um, despite that, I think a lot of people are falsely looking for one of them to be either more right or to have anything interesting to say <laughs> at all. Uh, neither of which I think are necessarily qualifiers for a good movie. Um, I love movies that are about people who uh, think they have a lot to say, but really don't, or are chasing something that is kind of illusionary or doesn't really have any strict value. Um, I totally agree that Dennis Hopper is completely empty headed for most of the movie, but I also think that Orson Welles is like hilarious in how much he's trying to get Dennis Hopper to even think like him, not, not to have the same opinions of, as him, but for his mind to work in the same way that he his does <laughs> and his increasing frustration at Dennis Hopper to even commit to a point and for Dennis Hopper to not care at all about any of this, that's the real meat of the movie. And it just reveals so much about both of these guys who, who to one degree or another are kind of held up as these cinematic icons um, of various eras and who did create some landmark work, but that doesn't mean that everything they say or do or think really is that important. And I think it, it acts as a really valuable kind of uh, taking out the air of the great, especially white male auteur um, in an age, because both of them existed in an age when public people were less visible. And so they could control to a certain extent, the personas mm -hmm. that would leak out and Orson Welles very purposely played with his, his own sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Uh, Dennis Hopper, I think did to a similar degree, although kind of less overtly. Um, so to see the two of them just kind of unvarnished and to be fair, I think had Orson Welles intended this to be a feature, which I don't think he did. 
it would not be nearly as long, which I think would be less valuable. I think the value of it is seeing these two guys just exhaust themselves and us of the very notion that they were persistently geniuses and that anyone who is a genius just creates nonstop genius stuff. Um, the real value of it is seeing their limitations and the limitations they bring out in each other, how quickly Orson Welles is able to get Dennis Hopper, who's like the face of a generation to kill him up completely empty and not really have anything important or even semi-important to say, and how eventually Dennis Hopper exhausts Orson Welles' open-mindedness, his ability to uh, be curious about other people, to be curious about his time. Um, I think the most telling co moment comes early on when uh, Dennis Hopper quotes Bob Dylan and Orson Welles just goes, who's that? And this is like, <laughs> it's not like Bob Dylan was a stranger to the national community by 1970. Yeah. You know? uh, he was a fairly notable public figure. And so Wells is just completely out of touch with his time, which then, you know, a lot of the kind of easy opinions he gives of a lot of the new wave artists kind of come up empty because he is a guy who's completely out of touch by this point. Whatever kind of finger he had on the pulse uh, has long past evaporated. Um, but how much... Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, I'll all this kind of uh, really comes to a head kind of midway through the film uh, in the film's now, I think, most controversial section where they discuss uh, women and the uh, of value they might see or not see in disrobing for these men on camera. Um, and just the way neither of them show really any curiosity towards a woman's point of view, it all just comes back to them, I think is really revealing as well. And I recognize this whole operate, this whole kind of way of seeing a movie isn't for everyone, but for those who like to kind of pick between the lines and see what's underneath the way people present in a movie, I think there's a lot of value here. Uh, I mean, I, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm too uh, uncurious because I felt like at least with Dennis Hopper, there's not a lot, there's not a lot below the surface with him that's you described him as not caring about the uh, about this but i feel like that's not true at all i feel like dennis hopper is someone who is very self-conscious and very image conscious and cares a lot about how he comes across and as a result of that won't say anything that could commit him to a point of view sorry my point was more that he didn't care that he couldn't satisfy orson welles requirements Oh, okay. Yes. He didn't, he doesn't care about that. And that is, uh, that that's fine. Um, the, uh, two things I was going to ask you about, um, because we have, what we haven't talked about is that this was done sort of for, or in conjunction with the other side of the wind. Right. And so according to the opening title card and it, it comes up, uh, at some points, uh, Orson Welles is sometimes himself, but sometimes playing Jake Hannaford. Right. So I don't, I didn't know if the Bob Dylan thing was him. Cause I can buy the Jake Hannaford doesn't know That's who Bob true. Dylan is. That's fair. I didn't know if maybe that was Orson Welles because then he, at one point he does tell a story about like, um, uh, uh, flying Ernest Hemingway on his private plane, yeah. <laughs> uh, somewhere. And I think we, we later get a sort of, all but confirmation that like, oh, that's a Jake Hannaford story. That's not yeah, something sure. that's not a real uh, Orson Welles story. So, um, I mean, that didn't bother me, but uh, I didn't know for sure if the, the Bob Dylan thing um, was that the last question I will say for you, going back to the beginning of Hopper Wells, right. Yeah. Um, and I have an answer, but I'm going to ask you first, do you think Orson Welles liked easy writer? Um, I guess I don't, no and well i'm asking you what you think yeah but i 
I guess I would assume he didn't just based on the, actually really based on the other side of the wind, which I think in part parodies a lot of the easy rider and kind of post easy rider stuff. Um, and my general knowledge of Orson Welles distaste for kind of new wavy stuff. Hmm. Uh, I would assume he didn't, but was curious about its value. Okay. Um, uh, I feel like he did like it or at least um, liked it more than he expected to and and uh maybe that's why he went into this with some curiosity about dennis hopper yeah i guess that's true i guess why would he invite him to be a part of the other side of the wind if he didn't at least enjoy it a little bit uh the only other thing i want to say about it is that uh it was shot by the same cinematographer as the other side of the wind and if a movie about two people talking who by the way we never see orson welles throughout the entire movie yeah that was a surprise to me super Um, funny yeah i like Um, that but i was surprised going in or, or surprised to learn that yeah but so given that setup that it's just dennis hopper on camera for the whole time uh the camera work keeps it really exciting and really dynamic and has the feeling of a dynamic conversation uh yeah and also i mean there's no uh, as much as i uh, make fun of uh this age of of dennis hopper's persona um he's still like a good-looking guy sure yeah uh all right so what's what's next for you what was your next one however wells no my next one is uh the classic uh, girl falls in love with the carnival ride story of Jumbo. Um, this is indeed a French film in which uh, I forgot to double check her name. I think Naomi Morant Mar- uh, yeah. from uh, Portrait of a no yes yeah. Portrait of Lady on Fire. Um, uh, she plays a young woman who gets a job at a carnival and very quickly falls in love with their uh, star attraction, which is a carnival ride. Um, and the film at once steers into the skid of the absurdity of that premise, but almost too much. Uh, I think it's too quick and too easy to assign it to just like a mental illness thing. Um, before oddly towards the end, kind of shrugging and be like, well, people are going to love who they love, um, which seemed like p- kind of polar opposite tacks to take. Uh, but when it's really goes full on into her mindset. Uh, Morland's performance is amazing and she really dedicates herself completely to the physical and emotional end of it. Um, just kind of like groping and pawing at the machine and the wide-eyed uh, excitement she takes when they're together. And that whole section is really beautiful as the machine like lights up and that kind of dictates the whole lighting scheme of the film. Um, all that stuff works super well. And there's a very surreal and very strange sex scene between the two of them. That is uh, quite a sight to hold. Um, but the way it fills out her life is really uninteresting. There's sort of this tendency in French comedies to draw the comedy from just characters saying inappropriate things at inappropriate times uh, that the film relies on too much. Her mother just wants her to meet a nice young man and just keeps asking her if she's having enough sex. <laughs> like that, that line only goes so far and only works so well. Um, and then she has this kind of scummy boss who's always hitting on her. And uh, there's some uncomfortable humor from that. Um, but all that is, I mean, I guess in some ways it just highlights the mundanity of her life and makes it seem like, well, of course she would fall in love with the carnival ride, but I don't think all that is very much on purpose or very productive uh, towards where the film gets. Um, I still think it's worth watching because it's a, unusual movie and it's pretty short and Roland's performance is really, really great. And there's enough in the film that does work, but, um, not a standout. Um, it's funny. You, you mentioned uh, carnival rides. One of my favorite carnival ride scenes in a movie ever is a movie you and I saw at AFI Fest last year, which is called to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Um, speaking of a movie that I just walked into knowing nothing about and absolutely loved and which 
was supposed to get released this year, but doesn't seem to be happening. Oh, uh, but that the, the main character in that movie is, uh, she hosts like a, uh, travelogue like tv show and there's a sequence at a carnival where she has to get the shot of her riding this carnival ride and they keep having to get the shot so she has to ride this ride alone like a half dozen times in a row and it's like funny but also like scary and kind of nauseating at the same time yeah, it's a great that is, scene that is a film that gets a lot out of a single wide shot of a girl riding a <laughs> carnival yeah all right so next up for me is the one um not new film that i saw it's a new restoration uh but sticking with dennis hopper I saw his 1980 film out of the blue, which is a movie that I had been meaning to see for, for a while. Um, and, uh, unlike Hopper Wells did not disappoint. I loved this movie so much. Um, yeah. I saw this many years ago, so I have a kind of sketchy memory of it, but go ahead. I I'll just se- generally second the love for it. Um, well, I don't, I, I, I try to like treat the movie as being the movie, but I do want to say something about the, the way this movie came to be, which is that Dennis Hopper was cast in this Canadian movie and uh, the director got fired. You know, the, the producers weren't happy with the, the dailies or whatever happens. The director got fired. And then Dennis Hopper not only stepped in his director, he rewrote the script to cater it to the star uh, young uh, Linda Manns, who actually died earlier in, uh, in 2020. Um, best known to me from uh days of heaven uh, i guess um and uh i i just got done saying a bunch of mean things about dennis hopper so i will say um that he made three really great films easy rider the last movie and now this now that i can add to the to the total he you know just because it's a person doesn't have much to say literally you know uh um uh verbosely or whatever um doesn't mean they're not uh, a talented artist um he made great movies and one of his 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 credits and one of the few times in hopper wells actually that he um seems to be speaking from the heart is when he's t- he talks about loving his actors um uh uh, he clearly loves uh, um, Peter Fonda and no other Fondas. We didn't talk about that. The, be- <laughs> the best part of Hopper Wells maybe is him talking about how much he hates the non-Peter Fondas. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, he, he's an actor. He, he clearly has a lot of respect for actors and for him to take, uh, to, to, to cater a movie to its star and that star being, a, you know, a teenage girl with not much acting, uh, experience, I guess, uh, at, at that age. And just, uh, he, he made a movie that, uh, completely feeds off of her, um, uh, singular, uh, energy and made what I'm going to say, this is big talk. Uh, but I think I know what I'm talking about. I think it's one of the best punk rock movies I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, not that it doesn't have a whole bunch of punk in it, but in terms of a 1980s, like how old is she supposed to be like, 14 maybe i don't know Uh, it's been Um, too long i'm not sure um the idea of someone just discovering punk and like really loving its ethos but not being savvy enough to not be kind of embarrassing about it yet uh it really like uh uh uh, captures that probably because that's who Linda Mans was at that time. You know, she probably had more passion than knowledge about punk rock, which is where I was when I was 13 or 14 or whatever. Um, uh, and, and, uh, so the, the story is that, um, uh, Linda Mans plays a girl who's 
uh, her father is Dennis Hopper in the opening scene. He, uh, he's a truck driver has a, causes a fatal accident and, uh, goes to prison and the movie sort of, uh, picks up a few years later when he's being released from prison for this, uh, and coming back into, uh, her and her mother's, uh, lives and uh, her mother, I forget her name, but she's from, uh, night of the comet. Um, and, and some other stuff also oh, right. great. Um, uh, um, so yeah, it's a very, uh, uh, it, it has the very, it, that's what I mentioned Dennis Hopper's later directorial efforts like colors and, and chasers. And I feel like, um, what, the worst thing that happened to Dennis Hopper as a director was the, he, that he got in terms of in industry terms, he got too good at directing quote unquote, <laughs> like he, uh, he got too comfortable with, with how you're supposed to direct and ended up making movies that have less and less personality. Um, where, whereas easy Rider and last movie in this just feel like he's trying to find what he can with, uh, with the camera and put it, putting it together in, uh, in post, um, in, and and uh drawing for the 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 energy that came from the production that came from the set um from from the photography drawing that through and using that as 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 the through line uh as opposed to doing the you know um coverage you know or whatever uh that you're that you're quote-unquote supposed to do um uh and that's why that's why those three movies that i that i mentioned this one being the third um have such a uh have a unique uh intensity and electricity to them um yeah i i i, I loved uh, out of the blue it's a very punk movie um it also i guess if we're giving disclaimers uh also has some uh, i guess maybe i i say disclaimers there should be trigger warnings there's some uh oh sure some uh, uh i don't want to say uh, I'm not sure what to say, but this underage girl gets put into some uncompromising uh, yeah. situations because she doesn't have anyone uh, looking out for her. Um, but a uh, very, very good movie. Right on. Uh, my next movie is, I'm not going to say it's my biggest disappointment of the festival, but it's uh, fairly dispiriting. Um, it is, what was her name? Heidi Ewing's uh, I Carry You With Me. I also uh, saw this and also was disappointed. in <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, so this got tons of praise. I think it premiered at Sundance. Um, everyone there loved it. Uh, Sony pictures, classic picks up for distribution. I think it's coming out in some capacity in some weird version of the extended Oscar campaign, uh, because enough people are really into it. Um, I, I don't really get it. Um, Heidi Ewing is a, I think mainly a documentarian, probably best known for Jesus camp, which is over a decade old at this point, at least. Um, and she yeah. just kind of started this movie as I understand it, as a documentary of the sport, this portrait of these two guys living in New York who, uh, illegally immigrated here, uh, like 20 years ago or so. Um, but came to be like pretty significant successes. One of them owns a restaurant or a series of restaurants. Yeah. Um, I, we only see one in the movie, but he does make reference to restaurants, plural. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the, latter portion of this movie is a pretty decent documentary portrait of these two guys. The first hour and a half or so is a sort of dramatic recreation of them falling in love and slowly kind of inching towards deciding to uh, sneak into the U S. And then of course, all the difficulty that comes with that, the harrowing journey through the desert, the uh, sort of uncertain 
employment status they find, uh, and then the emotional difficulty of being away from home and uh, feeling estranged and not finding everything they necessarily thought they would find immediately in America, and all the kind of uh, very potent and very worthwhile issues to explore that come with immigration. Uh, that said, I don't think she finds that much of a character in either of them. And they don't really come across like unique individuals. They come across like archetypes that are there to stand in for the immigration experience um, and are pretty much just there to garner sympathy, which is very easy to already garner in their situation. So she had plenty of leeway to distinguish them in some fashion, but I, I didn't really get much from either them as real people or the actors portraying them. Yeah, some of it does have that feel of the like um, uh, uh, unsolved mysteries, dramatic recreation sure. type of like um, not that corny, but that uh, that unimbued with life, I guess. Yeah, um, I mean, I will say that they make a good attempt to kind of fashion it into a dramatic film. I think it mostly works. I think you would figure out that it's kind of a documentary fiction hybrid, um, just because of the camera work changes so dramatically. But I, I think the especially early on the two ends of those work pretty well in tandem. Um, uh, yeah, it, it reminded me of, and this is not a documentary uh, at all, but um, the movie from, I guess, just last year, uh, the two popes, was that last year or two years? Yeah. Ago? Good call. That was last year. So that's a movie that is based on like a play, right? And, uh, uh, Fernando Moraes, is that his, uh, the director's yeah. name? Made a movie of the play, but then also added in all this backstory for Jonathan Price's character that wasn't in the play. And all of that backstory stuff is the worst part of the movie. Right. <laughs> um, and it, and, and I kind of, yeah, so I, I carry you with me is kind of the same thing. It's like that uh, you've got an interesting subject for a documentary. Um, and then the stuff that made it not not a documentary the stuff that was added in all the all the recreations and the extended flashbacks whatever you want to call them um are the least in, inspired part and at least uninspired in sometimes a way that um made me feel kind of uh what's i don't know embarrassed that it feels mean but like no, um, i know you mean though but there's some stuff that's very like malicky but uh you know what i mean like a lot of uh um shots of people like walking with whispered voiceover right. narration. And it just highlights how much better a writer is Malik is than everyone who tries to imitate him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, uh, I, I also went in, uh, uh, looking forward to this one cause I'd heard, heard good things. And I, um, I didn't see Jesus camp. I did see, uh, Heidi Ewing and her, documentary partner whose name i'm forgetting their documentary about um norman lear just another version of you um uh, and i and i liked that uh so i yeah I, I went in looking forward to this and, and didn't didn't much care for it stick to docs we say well i think it's technically your turn even though we both went yes so um next up for me is the, talk about surprises the movie that ended up being my favorite film of, of the festival. Uh, we're watching this. Um, uh, I was watching all these with my wife. Uh, and so we picked these together and she, uh, my wife is a social worker and tends to be, um, uh, drawn to documentaries by people who are caught up in the sort of, uh, uh, legal social work type of system. And so she, uh, her, I was caught by a documentary called Jacinta, uh, which is, 
very much not and it's not as long as hoop dreams very much in that steve james type of uh mold of documentaries in which uh the director jessica earnshaw i think is her name uh spent five years with this person uh, oh, wow. jacinta i mean part of that jacinta was in in prison and so she couldn't spend every day with her but sure, the movie but covered the movie covers five years of of jacinta's uh life and um uh, and so what what ends up sounding like it could be just a you know a document about an issue because it's very much about she's uh, addicted to heroin and other opioids and that's obviously a uh, um in in recent uh, uh american history that's uh, a news item especially in like lower class uh uh northeast white communities which is what Jacinta's community uh is um so it seems like it could be just a, about that but it's really it's a it's a documentary of a of a person and it is a, it's a depiction of addiction that doesn't have i think in a good way doesn't have anything to say about addiction it's just about here's a this person's an addict and so we see uh um we see her she's in prison twice in the movie. So she's in prison when the movie starts and apparently Jessica Earnshaw is a photojournalist and was taking pictures at the Maine correctionals, uh, the women's main correct uh, women's correctional center in Maine. Um, uh, and that's where she met Jacinta and decided to make a movie about her. Uh, so we see her get out. She's been in prison. She's sober and we see her reconnect with her daughter. Uh, that's kind of the through line uh, that we learned like 10 years before she had her daughter's, father is also imprisoned uh and so like 10 years before she had handed off her daughter to her 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 paternal grandmother i guess her daughter's paternal grandmother sorry right. <laughs> um uh and with the plan of like getting my life getting her life together and then showing back up and being a mom and just it's been 10 years and she's been through this cycle of addiction and sobriety in prison and and out of prison um and uh um so we see her get out of prison and then we uh, the movie doesn't try to explain to us why she starts using it again. And, and uh, especially when she starts using it at a time when things seem like they're going uh, uh, perfectly. I mean, we don't know. That's the nature of documentaries is we don't know that what all ha happened. We don't know that the time we see her fall off the wagon is actually the first time since prison that yeah. she got out. We don't know that for sure, but you know, it's edited in such a way uh, that's filmmaking people. Um, uh, uh, and so we, frustrated with her and we realized oh her family would be frustrated with her too some of them a lot of her family are also addicts also in and out of prison um uh and, and so it's just i i don't want to get too bogged down and talking about the story of the situation there's plenty there there's plenty to to uh uh to mine from from that and and to learn about that but it's it's really just a picture a portrait of a person that you end up kind of like loving a little bit you love jacinta and you get so upset with her um sure. uh there were a couple other things i was going to say uh, uh about it i don't remember one of them i don't remember the other part i was going to say is that the movie is also i think maybe uh unintentionally um but this stuff is left in a kind of portrait of white privilege even among this very lower oh, class sure. person because you see she comes from this small town. You see when she gets arrested again, the like she's like making, making her phone call to her dad. The cop actually like gets on the phone and is like, Hey Rick, like, here's what I think you should do. Like the cop that is arresting her is like giving her dad 
like right. tips, uh, you know, yeah. and then, and then like in her arraignment, the judge is like, are you sure you don't want to make, take more time to think about your plea? Like stuff that you can kind of assume that a uh, black woman just since his age in the same situation wouldn't yeah. be afforded these, uh, uh, these things. And, and I, um, yeah, the movie doesn't, it's, uh, you know, the, the community takes place in is all white. So you're not seeing comparisons, but I think the fact that that stuff was left in is kind of, uh, um, uh, I think intentional on Jessica Earnshaw's uh, uh, part. Um, man, I feel like there was something else about this movie I really wanted to get to, and now I uh, I'm I'm forgetting what it was. Maybe I'll think of it of it later. Uh, oh yes, the other thing I was going to talk about was the the idea that I the I, I think kind of largely kind of uh, uh, overinflated and sometimes useless idea that a documentarian should be at a distance from their subject. Right. Uh, I think seeing Jessica Earnshaw, like kind of, uh, start to be very concerned and care about this person in the same way that we are. There's one part in which she actually like, uh, Earnshaw, the documentarian and the director and camera person actually like just gets in the driver's seat and drives just at the home because she's too high to drive. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I like that. Uh, I like that kind of stuff. Um, uh, this, yeah, this was, uh, I would say probably not counting out of the blue as far as 2020 films. This was my favorite film of the festival and also the biggest su- surprise as well. Right on. Uh, back to disappointments for me. Um, another immigration drama called Farewell Amour. Um, It's another one that's got a good premise. It's about a family uh, of uh, immigrants from Africa. Uh, The father has been in New York for, I want to say 17 years, something in that range. Um, And the rest of his family is just now able to join him. We kind of gather through conversations that there were immigration issues and visas to approve and all the kind of paperwork that keeps people unduly separated for so long. Um, And of course, you know, they've been in touch, but now that they're kind of back together, living together, they're recognizing all that's changed in that time and all that's different and all that's kind of like further isolating them uh, in ways that they didn't anticipate. Um, And meanwhile, they're all living together in a one bedroom apartment. It's he, uh, his daughter and his wife, um, so the daughter doesn't really have a space of her own. She's sleeping in a curtained off place in the living room. Um, the mother has to stay home all day. And, you know, the environment of New York City is very different from the African village that she was had been living in. Um, so she's having a t- tough time adjusting. And the father is having a tough time adjusting because he had been carrying on an affair with this woman who he now realizes he has a stronger attachment to than his wife, um, who is has changed so much in the intervening years. She's become this like religious zealot who doesn't allow their daughter to dance. Whereas uh, for them, for the father and mother dancing was like what brought them together and it's kind of central to their relationship early on. Um, so all that is very potent ingredients. I think the biggest misstep, and this is the first time feature writer director, the biggest misstep she makes is uh, isolating their points of view too much. Um, we see the whole like first third of the movie from the father's point of view. And then it cycles back to when the family arrives, get it from the mother's point of view. I can't actually can't remember the order. It might be the daughter second, but anyway, and then it cycles back to the beginning again for the daughter's point of view. Um, and so that falls into a couple of traps. One of which is that characters find out about things 
at the wrong times. <laughs> like um, the daughter's having a tough time connecting with the dad because she barely knows them. You know, she was an infant when he left and now she's almost out of high school, ready to go to college. Um, but she starts to kind of connect with him when she finds out that he was into dancing, which she is also really into. And that's what she really wants to be her pursuit. And so that's a good connection between the two of them. But in both of their storylines, she finds out about that at different times. <laughs> and so it doesn't cohere even narratively, um, much less emotionally, where we don't get the sense of them kind of slowly coming together and slowly starting to acclimate to one another. You know, by the time we're making progress on the dad story, then we're cycling back to the beginning. We have to reorient ourselves. And it all just feels... It makes them a 95 minute movie feel very slow for starters, but it also feels very choppy. Um, the other central problem is that while the writer director, whose name I forget, uh, Ekwa Masangi, uh, while she makes a lot of good decisions about um, kind of traits of the characters, they're not kind of imbued in a sort of lived experience. Um, there are very distinct traits about the father and mother. Um, the father, like I said, had been carrying out this affair. He's a taxi driver. Um, he's still kind of secretly going to these dance clubs to feel a bit of himself. Um, the mother is this religious zealot who's kind of ill at ease in New York, but they all just kind of remain archetypal decisions for the characters and not something that feels kind of imbued through the performances, imbued through the drama. It doesn't seem to build and inform the instinctive ways the characters react to the situation. The one exception being uh, the daughter storyline I think most of that is because she's feels to me like the strongest actress in the bunch. Um, she's a complete newcomer. This is her first film. Her second film is the upcoming of the Batman, um, but she's a recent Juilliard grad and uh, really an incredible dancer, which is pretty key to her storyline. And she has a much better understanding of kind of how to fill the dead moments in the film when there isn't a lot of dialogue. And there are, it's a fairly slow film altogether and relies a lot on the actors to kind of, react and guide it along but she's the only one who really feels like she's filling out the in-between moments with the individual uncertainties with the individual discomforts and not kind of just the broader discomfort that she's been assigned by nature of the story um so her section works pretty well uh the other two i don't think do and then the whole design of the film i think kind of falls apart uh that's too bad that um there are multiple points of view of the same like uh events yeah. Uh, uh, reminds me, uh, reminds me of the affair, which I'm watching, uh, Showtime's the affair, which is, that's kind of the whole conceit of that show. Um, I understand but, it uh, handles the actual narrative developments better <laughs> and remembers uh, when people find out certain things. Um, well, but some, sometimes I think the, the affair very, uh, uh, intentionally, uh, does that uh, differently i don't know the affair okay. is a crazy show by the way um i've i've gone back and forth being like it's okay it's great and now i'm just like it's crazy but i was uh uh you and i were talking recently on our witch episode about the movie teen witch yeah. and the idea of there's no such thing as a movie being uh like so bad it's good if you're enjoying it that on some level you think it's good that's where i am on the final season of the affair right on it is I not good it. in a way that most people would say, but I am enjoying the hell out of it. Uh, all right. That was my uh, one contribution because it's your turn again, because my next one would have been, I carry you with me. Oh, okay. Uh, then the last movie is uh, one I saw, honestly, purely for the title. I didn't know what it was about at all. It's called My Donkey, My Lover, and I. Uh, that is not the original French title. It, the French title refers to the environment of the hike she's going on through the movie, which is some 
something that must be known to French people, uh, but it must not be known to Americans because I didn't recognize it and they retitled the movie for us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's about this uh, young woman. She's probably in her late 20s, early 30s. She's a teacher at a school. She's having an affair with uh, one of the dads of one of the girls she teaches. Um, and she's not in a relationship, otherwise he's married. Uh, and the two of them, you know, have to do the usual affair stuff. They have to sneak off in secret and uh, just get these in-between moments. But uh, his wife was supposed to be going on a trip and they were supposed to have a week totally to themselves, totally together. Um, but that got canceled last moment. So he could go on this kind of very interesting sounding hike that uh, I guess Robert Louis Stevenson wrote about going on where he went on this long hike with a donkey. And so there's apparently this like tour group that you can just rent out a donkey and go on this hike. Um, so he's planning on going to with his family and she decides rather impulsively, she has this free week. She is going to do the same hike and try to find him and semi stalk him. Um, and so much of the first half is this kind of, it's a comedy. So it's fun, very funny to watch her try to acclimate herself to this trail. She has almost no hiking experience, let alone experience handling a donkey. So her on the trail trying to figure out the donkey's needs, her needs, um, eventually figuring out that just talking to the donkey will get it to walk more, which is kind of an easy way to get a lot of exposition in, but it works because the actor, lead actress is very charming and very winning and very funny in her own right. And so all that stuff that sounds very like kind of archetypal and rom-com setup, uh, she really makes work and makes work very well. And then by the time she does uh, find him and his family, uh, she starts to find that maybe he's just kind of an asshole <laughs> and maybe uh, <laughs> that the same traits that caused him to cheat on his wife might be turning around on her. And it becomes kind of this great uh, exploration of a woman finding herself, but not in like a way that she'd ever set out to uh, and not in any kind of by design way. It almost happens very naturally. There are decision, romantic decisions she makes that the film could easily kind of look down on that she's, being too impulsive or in American parlance, too slutty. Um, but which the film is just kind of like, yeah, she's just out there. She's single. She didn't really owe herself to anybody. So uh, she's just doing this. And yeah, so it's, it's a fun little jaunt. Um, nothing super memorable. I would kind of be surprised if it even gets distribution here because pointedly minor work. Um, but especially based on the strength of the lead performance, she really carries the whole thing and there's not a scene without her. So you don't have to worry about any part of it, not working because she's uh, making it work. All right. Um, next up for me is a Danish movie called Wildland, uh, which uh, has a lot going for it in terms of its, uh, the performances, the cast is, is great um, in including uh, the, the, and I already lost her name, the lead role, uh, Sandra Guldberg. But uh, in the, well, see, here's what I'll say. The premise is, and most of the plot is so similar to the plot of 2010's Animal Kingdom that I couldn't stop comparing them. Sure. Um, but uh, if Jackie Weaver is the standout of Animal Kingdom, uh, Sidzi Babbitt Knudsen, uh, who's... Um, I guess best known for the Duke of Burgundy, which I didn't see. She's one of the two women in the Duke of Burgundy. Um, she's also in good. So that uh, works. <laughs> she's also in, in fabric, which I did see. Um, she's terrific. Um, 
but yeah, the premise is, like I said, remarkably similar to, to Animal Kingdom. There's a, except it's a girl instead of a boy this time, but a, there's a teenage girl whose mother uh, dies, leaving her alone and leaving her in the care of her uh, extended family, her aunt and, and, her, and her three uh, sons who are small time, small town criminals and she gets wrapped in, up into their uh spider web of criminality this it's, is animal kingdom <laughs> this is the same it's the same <laughs> plot as animal kingdom except it feels a little bit more low stakes which is uh not a good thing sure um uh and i i could never uh, I, it, it has too much of that um it's too similar too lower stakes and also it has too much of that you know uh you know you can tell like serious independent or middle brow art how art house uh movies over the last 10 years or so by how like they're super hushed a lot yeah. of the time you know and then someone gets up and walks across the floor and you hear you hear like their feet really loud because that's how quiet it, it, it is right. uh um it has a lot of that going on um it's another movie like you said about um uh, was it Farrell Moore that has a short runtime but feels like it goes on yeah. for a long time because it's very slow moving? Um, it's uh, it's it's unfortunate. Um, I can't say I'm not going to say too much else uh, about it, but um, the performances are good. I mentioned Sandra Goldberg. Sandra Goldberg Camp is the lead. Sidsy Babbitt uh, Nudsen um, is uh, fantastic, and also is one of the uh, the dumbest of the hooligans. Uh, also very dumb girlfriend, Carla Philip Roeder. All women in, in Denmark have to have three names, apparently. Um, she's also really terrific, too. Those three performances are great. No performances in the movie are bad. If there's any reason it's worth seeing, it's because of uh, of the people on screen. But um, it's, like I said, it's Animal Kingdom. You've seen it before. Yeah. Except, apparently, not as involving. <laughs> right, yeah. All right, so I think you're up, then. No, that's it. That my donkey was the last oh then i have we must have miscounted because i have one more um, well we had a lot of overlap so it's tough to say yeah. if we strictly went uh the last thing i saw the one special was it called special presentation or whatever because i bought my ticket your press pass didn't get you special presentations right no i, I didn't um, think about doing a few but they were sold out by the time i yeah the, the, the one that i bought uh because it was the final night and i was like okay i can make this work because the thing is uh, the special presentations is they're only available for a four hour window so like right. you really have to so i was like okay i can plan ahead uh and so natalie and i watched uh got some sushi and watched my psychedelic love story which is the new errol morris movie um and it's uh errol morris has a few like sort of uh, there's a venn diagram of, of his work it all overlaps with his like style but this is not an issues doc, like standard uh, operating procedure. It's not a portrait like, you know, American Dharma or the unknown known or frog of war or whatever. This is the human interest, Errol Morris, which is sometimes my favorite Errol Morris. Um, but not recently, I would say fast, cheap and out of control is maybe my favorite Errol Morris movie. Um, and, and that's like the, the ur text of his human interest, uh, <laughs> style. Uh, this one, my second old love story is, um, ba actually, I guess to the extent that a documentary can be based on something, it's based on a memoir okay. by a woman named, uh, Joanna Harcourt Smith, who was interviewed at length in the movie and who actually passed away on October 11th. It's, she just died. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, there's a, uh, 
a title card at the end of the movie. Um, uh, it's very sad because she seems so full of life in the movie. But uh, this woman, Joanna Harker, Harcourt Smith, was from roughly 1972 to 1977. Uh, timothy leary's lover um as one reporter in the movie uh uh puts it timothy leary's woman which is a weird like very outdated way of saying it but um, yes <laughs> among other uh, things but um yeah they were but uh, i guess just in the sense that they were never married but they were uh, very uh you know joined at the hip for about five years except for the fact they so she was with him so he, uh, I don't know how, I, I don't, I, I don't know that much about Timothy Leary, um, especially his life story. So he was like in prison or like, at least he was detained and then escaped and went to Europe and lived in exile. He was like, okay. like Roman Polanski, but not for terrible things, um, just for, you know, drugs and stuff. Uh, um, so he was living in Sweden when he met her. And then they went to Afghanistan together and Afghanistan is where the American forces caught up with him and arrested him and brought him back to the U S where he ended up going back to prison. And so I guess there's apparently there's been a conspiracy theory that Joanna Harcourt Smith was not just a young woman who fell in love with Timothy Leary, but sure. some sort of like CIA operative, like a plant who was there right. to draw him to Afghanistan where he could get, uh, uh, picked up. So, uh, basically this is just a movie about five years of the seventies and a very specific, uh, person's life. Who's, um, in one sense, famous for being tangential to a more famous person. But in another sense, we learn a really fascinating person all on her own, uh, mostly fascinating for being, uh, uh, she's, I can't remember where she was born, but she's, she's got that sort of like continental aristocracy, uh, to her, but mixed with the seventies hippie. So she was probably the black sheep of her family or whatever. Um, so she's a really fascinating, uh, person who dropped like she, she's got that very specific charm where she can drop names, which she does constantly, but it feels very natural. Cause you just get the yeah. impression, like all her friends are super famous people. <laughs> so like she tells a story, she was like, and we were hanging out with this friend of mine, Diane von Furstenberg. And, <laughs> um, uh, stuff like that happens, happens throughout. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's mostly, you know, uh, lightweight stuff from, from Errol Morris. Um, but if you like his, his his style which i tend to uh it's an enjoyable uh, an enjoyable watch and she's a fun person to spend you know 100 minutes with or whatever especially since um she passed away which is very sad uh so yeah uh, my second love story is the the last one uh that i watched right on uh do people still escape from jail um i don't know i i, I feel like they must right but at the same time I was I, know, I was reading some article about somebody in the past who escaped from jail. I was like, yeah, that is something you, I feel like you used to hear about more often, but it seems impossible now. Well, I guess uh, here's my conspiracy theory. <laughs> okay. That the uh, privately owned prisons are paid to, uh, or a little maybe owned by the same people as the media and uh, work, to work together to keep those stories out of the press. All right. I like That's, it. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. Maybe people are escaping from prison all the time. I don't know. All right. Seems so, impossible. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I could do it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. I'll arrest you and then we'll figure out how this goes. <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, this was a, a, a different AFI fest. Hopefully by next year, we'll be back at uh, Hollywood and Highland. Who knows? Got to get those pretzels. I got to have, uh, I got to do my, write my reviews at, uh, 
uh, Sammy Hagar's restaurant, which I've forgotten the name. That's how long it's been. Cabo, Cabo Wabo. Wabo. Yeah. Although they're completely, uh, apparently they're completely renovating Hollywood Highlands. So well, it's under, it's under different ownership. Yeah. So they're, um, they're trying to turn it into like century city. So it might very well be a different Hollywood Highland when next we go there. Yeah. That's kind of, I guess a bummer. I don't know. I don't know how much I really care as long as the movie <laughs> know, theater is right? there. Um, but yeah, I weirdly know that because I'm on Hollywood and Highlands email list, like mailing list. What a horrible <laughs> mailing list to be on. <laughs> well, they like, um, they have every summer like a uh uh it's like jazz like jazz july where like every thursday night in july there's live jazz in the courtyard at the mall or whatever and i guess i like bought tickets to that and ended up on their list um and so i I always get emails about uh, uh about hollywood and highland so um uh yeah that's what i learned about the new ownership and and everything but uh again as long as the chinese six is there and hosts things like afi fest and, and tcm fest vacant the rest of the year yeah i don't know i don't care <laughs> have you ever been there the rest of the year there's nothing going on i even went during uh, movie pastimes when anyone could go for like a very cheap fee and uh there were like five people there yeah I've, i mean i've been there for occasionally for press screenings i feel like the last movie i went to the Chinese six just to see I'm going to guess was city of Ember, which was what? 2009. That sounds about right. Yeah. That was a long time ago. Uh, that might've been 2008. Yeah. Um, I think that was the last movie that I, that I would, I used to, cause I lived, well, you live in Hollywood. I used to, and I lived yeah. in Hollywood for the first five years. So sometimes it was just the closest theater that was showing what I wanted to to see, you know, I think I saw a couple of the Harry Potters, uh, there and, and, and some other stuff. Um, but, uh, it probably uh, wasn't as wildly expensive as it is now. Right. Um, the experience you get, it's like 20 bucks by the time you get factoring parking. I guess again, when I lived there, I was probably riding my bike or walking. Sure. But I mean, the parking fee isn't a ton. I'm just saying like the tickets are like $17 already. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you're making me nostalgic for, uh, Hollywood and Highland. And, uh, uh, even though we just talk shit about it, but, um, I, you know, I got to get, uh, my Cabo Wabo. Who knows if that, yeah, like you said, who knows if that's going to be there. Yeah. Uh, the ramen place that you hate. Um, I hate it because it gave me raging diarrhea. (laughs) It was a bad scene, but I love the poke place. Uh, there's a place near the poke place that does like the weird cardboard bowls of just like pasta that they churn yeah, in those big it's, cylinders it's called wealthy that's right <laughs> it's healthy with a w wealthy. yeah that's that's a good time i like that food uh the, the waffle believe the waffles i have not had the waffles but i know of the waffles oh yeah the waffles are good um all right so we've talked about all the hollywood and highland things we talked about afi uh hopefully like i said hopefully we'll be back at, uh, at a regular festival by next october uh but uh honestly who knows and that's yeah. very depressing for me to think about um yeah. Uh, in the meantime, you can find reviews of almost everything we talked about today at battleshippretension.com. You can email uh, me at david at Um This week, I don't think I have anything that I reviewed uh, as far as new releases. Um, not a big uh, release weekend, I guess, for Halloween. Um, yeah, when you can't pick, pack people... I mean, I know like uh, the Craft Legacy came out. Right, right. Um, but everyone apparently hates that. But I, I feel like horror movies, like you got to get the audience in there, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's it. Battleship pretension. You can follow me on Twitter at David pretension. Email me at David battleship Uh, Scott, where can people find you? Should you want them to? Yeah. Well, reviews are up 
uh, battleshipretention.com on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. Although I've been pointedly avoiding Twitter on the for the most part, just because election fever had had me all stressed out. Um, so you won't find me there as much. Uh, also at Criterion Cast, we did an episode about the War Room for uh, election season, and that sounds like about it. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Scott. Yeah, of course. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 